2: Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. You are joined today by myself, Jacob, and my beautiful co host, Evan. It's me. Hello. Hello, (laughs) Evan. How are you? I'm going really well, Jacob. How are you? I'm doing sensational, actually. I had a, a lovely bike ride here this morning, and I've noticed that the sun... It's not all the way up. Not yet. No, no. It's, uh, it's heading the other way, in fact, at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it feels so weird to be heading into the winter months, doesn't it?
3: It does. It does. Um, I was uh, walking along the beach the other day, and um, my girlfriend, she said,
2: oh, isn't it funny
3: that winter's just around the corner? I said, well, there's still one whole season before that. <laughs> so, as long as we're at this stage uh, in, in three months' time, just as excited about spring as we are... Mm. <laughs> (laughs) At the moment, worried about winter, then I think we'll be all okay in the bigger scheme of things. But yeah, definitely changing rhythms of the city. But it's it's a good time of the year though, with uh, all sorts of festivals. Melbourne Comedy Festival coming up soon, and
2: it's been a good time with midsummer over the last number of weeks as well too. Absolutely. And did you get around to any of the midsummer events? Recently, I wish that I had,
3: and, but unfortunately, not. It's just been a little bit crazy over the last couple of weeks. Being on the road, I've been darting about all sorts of different pockets in Victoria, and uh, the schedule's been a bit silly. So I've, I've, I've missed it, and so I'm feeling a, a little bit down about that. But I know that you have. Oh yes, absolutely, <laughs> of course. You yeah.
2: know me. I um, had a great time, actually. Uh, not yesterday, but the Sunday before. They had Melbourne Pride happening on Smith Street and Gertrude Street. Um, and there was some amazing performers. Probably one of the standouts would have been Electric Fields.
3: Oh, they're fantastic. Yes. Yeah. They,
2: I've seen them perform a couple of times live yeah. now. And they they just always bring such an amazing energy to the stage. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so infectious when a performer can just completely own their song, and they've just got such a, a distinctive style, and I think everyone was just so happy to be there. Mm-hmm. Not to mention just the novelty of being in a mosh pit after so many years of, you know, being at home. Wow. Um, mosh pit. That's pretty excellent. I know. It was, yeah. just, uh, it was, it was great. Um, it was so nice just to be among community, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing more live events this year, I think. Um, well, I hope <laughs> we can stay out and about. Definitely. Me too.
3: This is a month of good music. I'm looking forward to seeing Cedric Burnside, who have played a couple of times on the show. He's playing at the Northcote Social Club and a whole different Victorian venues and just having international acts being back in the country as well, too. That's also really, really exciting. And then at the end of the month, I've never seen Electric Fields, but they're going to be at the Queenscliff by the Pier Festival. And mm. so, yeah, come I can't wait to check them out. I love their music. I like the the joy and I think just that sense of total music that you're talking about there. And so that'll be really, really fun to see them.
2: Oh, absolutely. That'll be very, very special. Mm. And I know you've been um, out visiting some nature this week, which I think ties in quite well to our first interview for today. Did you want to tell us a bit about who's coming on and what they're speaking about? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be chatting with Jordan Crook, who's the forest
3: campaigner for the Victorian National Parks Association. I met Jordan would have been middle of last year when I was producing a, a podcast on the flowering giants the mountain ash trees of the central highlands he's a huge advocate for protection of Victoria's wilderness and we'll be hearing about what's on the radar for VMPA, what their plans are for this year's election and just what's been keeping Jordan busy over the last few months, a bit on um, protecting some forests from a mountain bike path and then also with uh, some work on feral animals as well too, so it'll be good to chat with him
2: Sensational and I think it so important as well because often in these election cycles environmental issues really get pushed to the back burner and and understandably it's because they don't really have a direct impact on people but I still think that it's so important to maintain forests and and what we have because they do play such a vital role in sustaining humans on this earth so yeah I'm really looking forward to hearing from Jordan and, and everything they have to say on that. Yeah, I am absolutely. also excited um, for our second interview, which is with uh, Dr. Kirill Nurjanov, who we um, you may remember we had him on the show a few weeks ago, speaking about um, some of the things happening in Central Asia with Kazakhstan. Well, this week he's going to be speaking about the unfolding situation in Ukraine. And for those that aren't uh, aware, there's been a bit of a, um, I guess you could say, international drama unfolding the last week or so in which countries believe that Russia is on the verge of invading Ukraine. So there's a lot to unpack there about some of the historic relations between the two countries. They have historically annexed um, a territory of Ukraine called Crimea, um, so it'll definitely be interesting, uh, but also a little, I guess, warring. It's not really a light-hearted topic, but... So much um,
3: brinkmanship there as well It's so mm. hard to understand What Putin's motives are Is that sense of Is this um, man an, an evil genius uh, Or is he just quite mad There are they're, they're questions that uh, that are being thrown out Regardless, it's a lot of people Whose lives have been thrown into t- chaos Jeopardy, there's fear The implications of an invasion Would just be huge For what it means Not only for, for Europe um, For Russia and Ukraine The countries themselves But for the rest of the world It's really, really daunting what's there, and it'd be great to have Kirill to help unpack some of these developments.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a bit of a terrifying prospect, isn't it, the, the idea of something unpack, unfolding into a bit of a worldwide conflict. Um, but we do have another amazing guest uh, around eight o'clock. I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to chatting with Ross Crates
3: who is a threatened bird specialist from ANU talking all things Regent Honeyeater. A lot of listeners might have heard of the Helmeted Honeyeater, but uh, equally vulnerable is the Regent Honeyeater. Uh, and so we'll be learning all about the Regent Honeyeater um, efforts to save this magnificent bird, a bit more about um, yeah, the bird's habitat and also um, how uh, how it is right now within The wild, really good to raise awareness about a bird that's not so much on the radar of Victorians, but it's still very much here in Victoria. So Regent Honeyeater with Ross at 8.
2: Oh, can't wait. You know, I always love when you bring us these really niche environmental <laughs> segments because I never have any idea what these species are. So I know I'm already going to learn so much about the Regent Honeyeater, and I can't wait to be able to have more facts. It's
3: been great being able to cover different threatened species here on 3CR. I mean, as part of the station's commitment to, yeah, supporting all creatures, big and small, Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, wonderful to be able to... Uh, put the spotlight on animals that very very sadly um, face the prospect of losing from not only this country from from this planet uh, and that 's uh, that's a terrible terrible prospect and so anything that we can do to raise awareness about uh, these beautiful and incredible creatures that are in such a perilous position i think is uh, is time well spent so uh, looking forward to to hearing ross 's perspectives on what we can do to give the uh, region honey eater the best
2: possible chance as am I. And can I ask Evan, did you have a chance to vote in the Guardian's Bird of the Year <laughs> poll at the end of last year? I... I did, I did. I voted for the Gang Gang Cockatoo. They're oh, my favourites. Then... I love them. So that's where your loyalties lie with, with birds.
3: oh very much so. I mean, I think that I'm a parrot fan above all and know my parrots um, better than all other parts of the bird kingdom and bird world. And the Gang Gangs, they're wonderful. I mean, they stick together as pairs um, through most of their life they uh, are really gentle creatures they have a really wonderful croaky voice uh that um you'll hear uh, if, you, if you're familiar with it it'll stand out um so significantly if you're in the middle of the forest and they're just very peaceful graceful birds and um both beautiful as well the um female and, and male birds sometimes um unfortunately you end up seeing uh, male birds end up with all of the fantastic colors and plumage but there's a lot there's a lot better equitable distribution uh, amongst the gang gangs but the male gang gangs do have this incredible sort of red mohawk as well too and this fluffy top and they're pretty fun uh
2: and so i like the gang gangs a lot Uh, Well, I I love that description. If (laughs) only we could accompany our our voices with a visual here so our our (laughs) listeners could get some idea of what... The gang gang looks like, but I think that name speaks for itself, really. Yeah. Like, what a great name. Yeah, I mean, if you hear it's very much like a gang gang. <laughs> so, they're, they're cool. They're cool things. Yeah. Uh, petition to introduce a segment where you, you just imitate birds. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, after our, our chat with Ross Crates about the um, the Regent Honey Eater, not the gang gang, um, we will be chatting with... Anna Anna Brown from Equality Australia. Um, So she's come on the show before as well. And we're going to be chatting to her about a bill, which some of you may have heard of, called the Religious Discrimination Bill. Um, And it actually is, uh, well, it was debated a couple of weeks ago in Parliament until about five in the morning. So federal MPs um, were tossing up whether they should give schools and other institutions the right to discriminate against trans and gender diverse uh, students and staff members. So as someone who's non-binary, it's a little distressing to think that this is uh, something that's being talked about in federal politics. Um, But I do have hope that I think this is just a reactionary kind of... Bill uh, targeted towards a very small number of conservative groups. It doesn't really make it any less terrible, though, does it, Evan?
3: No, no, not at all. I mean, it's really cruel. The intentions that are associated with uh, with the bill, at least prior to the amendments that were put forward by mm-hmm. the Greens, uh, ALP, and independent Rebecca Sharkey, but just the underlying motives and intentions to to make life more difficult for already marginalized pocket of society is is horrible uh, and it, and it's scary that a government would still still openly pursue it it's um a true revealer and marker of this Liberal national government's character and colour, and it's and it's mm. disgusting. It's really uh, disgusting that they will go to such lengths just to try to get some political advantage and what they see as uh, some as, um, potential pickups or holds in outer suburban seats within Australia.
2: Mm. Couldn't agree more, and it's just it's so frustrating because I think trans and gender diverse people in particular face so many barriers. And the trans population, for example, are significantly more likely of becoming homeless and also of developing mental health issues such as depression and anxiety and suicide. And what message is this sending if this is a conversation that is being had by elected representatives on taxpayer money? Like, it just blows my mind. And I just think it's it's very atrocious, but I'm looking forward to chatting with Anna more yeah. um, to unpack some of that. And, and the road
3: ahead as well. It's an, an election year, and so mm. what does that mean? Are, are we going to try to keep pressure on to ensure that parties you know, commit to pursuing a very different path uh, in the future? Um, so what, what lies ahead for the rest of the year? Now that the bill's been put on hold, I'd be yeah, fascinated to hear
2: her perspectives. Absolutely. Well... We've got a great show coming up for you. We're going to jump to a community service announcement and then a song. And we'll be back at about quarter past seven um, with a fantastic interview for you.
4: Johnson Street
5: Fiesta is back. After a two-year hiatus, we're celebrating Hispanic and Latin American culture with a street party in Fitzroy. Join us on Johnson Street on
4: February 26 and 27 as we eat, sing, and dance our hearts out. To
1: find out more, visit jarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. A 3CR supporter.
4: Even on it on night, beaming even on me Tribal vibing in a real life. Wonder lay by my side, beamin' even on me. Be bored about it
2: You're on 3CR Breakfast. Welcome back. That was Gold Energy by Electric Fields.
3: Loved it. Beautiful tune. Really, really catchy. And I um, hope you're enjoying your morning out there, everyone. This is 3CR with Jacob and Evan. And on the line, we have Jordan Crook, who is the nature conservation campaigner for the Victorian National Parks Association. Jordan is a passionate advocate and campaigner to save forests across the state uh, to ensure that there's greater community awareness when it comes to key threats that are facing the Victorian environment. Uh, and he's uh, an excellent, excellent communicator when it comes to talking about um, how all of our precious environment is interconnected. Jordan, great that you're there and um, how are you doing?
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
3: Oh, Thank really, you, really uh, good that you're on the line. How is, how's your weekend been, and, and how's the how's Monday morning starting for you?
6: Oh, Monday uh, morning's starting pretty well out here in the Yarra Valley, and um, yeah, not a bad weekend.
3: That's good. Did you have any time at all out in the forest or in the bush this weekend?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I got to spend some time <clears throat> up on Mount um, <clears throat> in the Yarra Rangers National Park, which is pretty good.
3: It's a, a stunning part of the world up at Mount Donner and some of those views are just magnificent. For all the listeners out there who may not have been there, it can get a little bit cold, although throughout winter uh, at Donner, but it's um yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful spot. When we met last time, Jordan, we were. Uh, um, in Tulangi, and we were talking about the campaign to save the incredible mountain ash trees. And I know that, um, uh, this year it's a, it's a, a state election year and, um, there's a whole range of different campaigns that, that are at play. But uh, an issue that is very dear to my heart. And I think it would be very wonderful to, to have an, a little of an update for the listeners out there. How's, everything tracking on the campaign to, um, yeah, I suppose, bring forward the end to uh, native tree logging in Victoria?
6: Yeah, uh, slowly. Um, I guess in 2019, the state government uh, committed to transitioning out of native forest logging, um, and that will come into effect on about 2024 um, is when the logging will start winding down, uh, but there was a good sign last year that um, the money to support people uh, who rely on native forest logging was released early. So um, businesses and individuals who rely on native forest for their wages um, can now access more money and can access it earlier um, than 2024. So that's um, that's good for people. Um, Hopefully that will result in an earlier transition out of native Forest Logging, but um, we obviously
2: keep pushing for that. I really, really
3: hope that um, the message is able to get out there loud and clear. For everyone who's listening to the show, there's a lot of folk who might have heard of the um, Great Forest campaign. And I'm just wondering, with a, a state election this year, what the push to really draw attention to um, saving these incredible mountain ash trees might look like and to also, yeah, um, that, that what the rallying call might look like this year to bring forward the wind-up of logging of native trees in Victoria. What, what, what does this year look like in um, 2022? With a, with a state election campaign? Uh,
6: well, conservation groups and um, community groups will be pushing again for the um, Great Forest National Park and um, that early transition out of native forest logging and, and support for the workers um, who rely on that industry. Um, and I guess now more than ever, it's, it's about the money and... Um, getting more money to those people who need it, but uh, also showing the Victorian taxpayers that native forest logging doesn't make any sense ecologically. It's wiping out our wildlife and damaging our water catchments, but it's also costing the taxpayer a lot of money, like a lot of money annually. Big forest runs at a loss fairly regularly, and, um, yeah, they're currently engaged in 10 individual court cases because of the, uh, their logging practices. So, uh, the, the industry as a whole is a bit of a sketchy
3: one. Absolutely. Thanks for that update there, Jordan. Now, I know over the last number of months you've been particularly busy looking to save the Yarra Rangers National Park from an inappropriate mountain bike track development. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
6: The local council um, out here in the Yarra Valley is proposing 177 kilometres of mountain bike tracks around the town of Warburton, um, which is kind of the opposite side to Hillsville out that way. Um, and we're worried about about 20 kilometres of tracks within the Yarra Ranges National Park, and the tracks proposed to go through cool-temperate rainforests and... Leadbed is possum habitat, as well as the critical habitat of this little uh, wingless stonefly called the Mount Dunawang wingless stonefly that's only found on the summit of Mount Dunawang.
3: So, what sort of risks? Um, does the potential development of this mountain bike track pose so as you say these credible species will be threatened but how does that threat actually uh, how would that threat actually play itself out or look like if the development was to go ahead
6: across the whole um, project about 34 hectares of native vegetation is set to be cleared um, with about 10 of that in the national park, and about 1.5 hectares of cool temperate rainforest would also be cleared. So you've got the immediate impact of removal of native vegetation, but you've also got the impact of um, installing new tracks into areas where there's never been tracks, um, particularly through the cool temperate rainforest, and pushing those tracks through will introduce new pests and diseases to the area um cool temperate rainforest uh, gets impacted by a disease called myrtle wilt, and that's whenever you damage a myrtle beech tree, whether it be a cut root or damage to a branch or a stem, can allow that pathogen to get in and, and kill the trees, um, and then they can actually spread it by their roots as well. So once you damage one tree, you might end up killing quite a few. So um, between four and six kilometres of those mountain bike tracks will go through cool-temperate rainforest, so the risk of spreading that pathogen is, um, is quite high.
3: And you're someone who's super familiar with these forests and, and this part of Victoria. How concerned are you at a, a personal level about what um, the mountain bike tracks um, present?
6: Uh, yeah, um, very, very concerned. Um, the forest on Mount Donabuang is some of the best stuff left in the uh, central highlands. A lot of the central highlands is uh, locked up in logging camps, So these areas that are open to everyone in, in the National Park and such high conservation values, old growth forests and beautiful cool temperate rainforest, it's already um, got enough walking tracks and the life through it. We don't really need any more and the risk is far too high, far
3: too high. And what does the campaign look like now to ensure that um, if it, the mountain bike track does go ahead, that it's done far more sensitively than what's proposed or to, to divert it all together. What are you hoping for? What's the plan? What's the aim? What's the ask? I guess so that out of
6: the 177 kilometres of tracks, it would be good. Um, to see the twenty kilometres in the national park not go ahead, um, so the local council has put up a few ideas, but they can't really get it through the national park without having a large impact on um, threatened species and cool temperate rainforest so that twenty or so ks in the national park needs to not go ahead. Um, it would be good to see the tracks put in state forests areas that have been logged already and have lower conservation value, and there's about almost 300,000 hectares of um, state forest out here. So um, they can put their tracks out there and ride to their heart's content.
3: And if listeners want to get involved in the campaign to ensure that the mountain bike track doesn't go through the national park, how do they get involved?
6: Uh, they can check out the Victorian National Park Association website, and it should be one of the first campaigns that pops up, and they can learn a bit more about the issues involved and um, learn how to get involved.
3: Brilliant. And, Jordan, very briefly, I know that you've been doing some work, too, on feral deer management. What's that look like?
6: Uh, not much at the moment, unfortunately. Um, the plans from the state government are still not out, um, There's an estimated million deer running around uh, Victoria at the moment and damaging state forests and damaging national parks and also creating a high risk um, to people's safety. So, yeah, unfortunately, the state government's a bit slow when it comes to controlling deer, and um, the sooner we can get on with um, reducing their numbers and reducing their impact, the better but the government's kind of dragging their
3: feet there. I think that would be a, a very good idea. Excuse the pun. Jordan, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much for chatting with us on 3CR Breakfast.
6: Thank you. Thank you both. Have a great day.
3: You too. That was Jordan Crook, the nature campaigner from the Victorian National Parks Association. Jacob, we're standing to, to lose quite a lot uh, with the mountain bike track going through the National Park and really, really hope that there can be a much more sensitive proposal that comes through.
2: Absolutely, and I, I think the importance of maintaining native forests was highlighted last week. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but the koala has been down, uh, sorry, upgraded, I guess you could say, from vulnerable status to endangered status, and I think largely as a result of, of habitat loss, whether that be through the black summer bushfires of 2020 or through uh, deforestation. So it is disappointing to see that there's proposals to put in a bike track that could potentially harm uh, more native animals when there are already so many, as you would know, who are at risk. Absolutely. It's... Uh yeah, it's staggering
3: how quickly that happened for the koalas. I mean, in talking about a space of 15 years, an animal that wasn't threatened, uh, to suddenly become threatened and to be endangered in Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT is, yeah, it's, um, it's beyond sad. And, uh, and, and then to think as you were saying that there still are so many proposals that threaten, um, this incredible, uh, ecology that we have here in Australia is just, yeah, it's mind blowing.
2: Mm. Well, we're going to turn the dial a little bit now um, and listen to something a bit different. Evan, have you ever been to a drag show before? I have, a couple of times. They're great fun. Love, love drag shows. Amazing. Well, I'm about to take you to a pretty special one. So this one... was called Smash the Drag Show, and it happened during the Midsummer Festival at the Abbotsford Convent. So if you haven't heard of them, Smash is a drag collective that prioritises POC and First Nations performers. Oh, how good. Yeah, it's great. And they're they're challenging the culture of, of whiteness that is very much prevalent in Melbourne's queer nightlife scene. They're also just super funny and super entertaining. So I went along to their show and I had a chat with four of the performers, Stone Motherless Cold, Moira Money, St. Eve, and Genitals, and I had the best time, um, and I pieced together this little segment for you, so I hope you enjoy. We would like to
7: acknowledge, with their respects, to your nations, to elders, past and present, and their forebears, I want to pay respects uh, to the celebration, initiation, and renewal
8: That has happened on these lands for millennium. Blackfellas are so deadly. Deadly as fuck.
2: This is Smash, a collective of POC and First Nations drag performers who are dismantling whiteness and cisgender norms in the drag community and creating a space for these artists to celebrate their craft.
7: Elijah Money, also known as Maura Money, as part of the Smash crew. Um, My position, I think, is... It's hard to say. Like, I'm hosting. I hosted. But um, ultimately, I feel like it's pretty even playing field and a lot less of a hierarchy thing. I bring the snacks. That's what I know. Mm -hmm. I bring the snacks, um, and I make a really concerted effort to get snacks for everyone. Um, I feel like that's me. The provider. I'm a provider.
1: Yes.
9: Um I am Stern modelist code, I'm Autonda Queen here based here in Nam. Audience what is the shot um, oh. at oh. I believe that
7: it is the first premium premium triple triple XL yeah. uh um,
9: of artists who come together to put on a show that we... or pu- to put on shows that we haven't seen before that we want and to... Yeah, I think we all have a, diff- we all have a very different perspective on drag and we all want to share that together to so how our perspe- perspectives come together and show a different side to the, yeah, cookie-cutter, four-step drag.
7: Mm, and I think it's really important to disrupt that scene being a majority First Nations and POC and non-cisgendered group of people. I think that's pretty incredible. And if nothing else, everyone in the group really just wants to celebrate and highlight how deadly and amazing we all are. And I think... We've all got such amazing different talents. We all bring different things. Mine is the snacks, as Per said. Um, but,
9: but, yeah. so no. goofy, funny, silly. Mm. Um, clown is more... We all have our very different styles of performing, which we love to celebrate amongst each other and be like, yeah, that was, that was fucking hot. We want to see more of what you're doing rather than, I guess, trying to amalgamate all of our styles into one style. Mm. Um, we respect and see everyone's styles and wanna
8: celebrate that really? well, congratulations. Give up,
9: We started out because we have we didn't see what we wanted to see out in the drag scene and we we're like, Okay, well we're just gonna fucking do it. We're gonna start our own night. we're gonna put out our own event and we're gonna curate the whole thing and that's up to us and um and I guess we wanted to set a standard. We wanted to set a new standard of drag in Nam um, because we're tired of seeing what is on the main stages and on the who is getting booked every day, every weekend. Yeah. Um, and we wanted, yeah, as Maura said, to disrupt that. Mm. So we had a fun little Runaway Bride revenge fantasy happening. We had kind of like
2: a biblical devil versus angel. Were there any highlights for you?
7: Oh, God. I mean, honestly, everyone's just so sexy. It's hard. Um, I think it was really dreamy that, even though the show and everyone put on such an iconic performance, it was seeing how excited the audience got and how, you know, into it and, like, so into it. There was so much participation, which was exactly what we based tonight on. Um, And it was just so... There was so much queer joy in the room, and I think... That is essential.
2: Hey, we're here at the Abbotsford Convent with my lovely friends Olympia and Beck. How are we feeling about the show so far?
1: Oh, it's fantastic. Really lively, energetic. Um, just. Yeah, just really enjoying it.
10: Yeah, they're so talented and um, must be so fit. <laughs> must be so fit.
9: Um, I'm friends with all
2: the queens here, and it's just so amazing to see like, Indigenous First Nations performers, um, POC performers and other queer artists like excelling out here. It's amazing to see. We've got like, maybe over 100, 200 people here watching yeah, I loved it. Sindal and Giddy, they killed it, like, amazing. Um, I loved how they took, like, a love story, but did a little twist to it. Um, it was very modern and very, it was amazing. Sindal looked
7: amazing. Giddy looked amazing. It was amazing.
2: Genitals and St. Eve closed the show with a very provocative angel versus devil number, fuel for the mind and the eye. So how are we? How are we feeling?
10: Fantabulous. <laughs> really sweaty. That
2: too. <laughs> very sweaty,
8: yeah. Very. <laughs> For our daddy, Mr.
2: <laughs> How long have you both been doing drag and, and what inspired you to get into it? Yeah.
10: Uh, so I've been doing drag a little bit over a year now. Uh, it was something I had wanted to get into for years, but I just wasn't sure if people would understand or get the whole gender bender kind of thing that I do. I didn't want people to perceive me as lazy, but for me, that, I'd spend five hours talking about it. But... Um, A big part of doing drag is I love the gender bender and just sort of not hiding my you know femininity and things like that was important to me too but kind of making fun of men but also celebrating really flamboyant men so that's my drag in a nutshell I guess yeah
8: (laughs) um I've been doing it for about this is about my third year I would say um I started off as a not a trained dancer but like a dancer. I always say I always put in, in quotation marks because I'm not trained, but um I started off as a dancer as Adam and then eventually came Eve and yeah, it was just like a natural graduation of me wanting to like step into something different and be able to express a different side of me because when you're just like a male dancer, that's it's pretty that's just it. But with drag you can literally can do anything and everything. So it was just a natural progression for like my I don't know performance career. started off is a very small project uh, at the start of twenty twenty one where I reached out to stone and I was like hey you 've got." a drag collective full of POC performers we are also in a collective of POC performers let's combine and put a big show on so the first Smash we did we had nine performers Um, unfortunately some people left Um, but we managed to pick up some other amazing performers like Genitals Genitals is our recent addition and I'm so glad that he said yes to being a part of Smash but it basically Smash is just to celebrate um, First Nations POC gender diverse it's to celebrate you know, people who are not cookie cutter in the drag world.
10: Eve, actually my wife, uh, asked me to be part of Smash. Uh, I think it was during one of the many unfortunate lockdowns we've had, um, and I was thrilled. I'd seen a Smash show um, early last year, and I'd seen this beautiful creature perform. I was like, oh my god, she's phenomenal. So to be able to actually perform on a stage with her tonight has been really special to me, and it's just amazing being part of Smash. Like like Eve said, like. Just yeah, nothing wrong with cookie cutter, but you know, let's try let's try a biscuit maybe, yeah. or two or yeah. three. I
8: don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I prefer Mars bars and Snickers yeah. over cookies, so yes. that's uh, that's what I would say. Smashes. Mm. If you like cookies, you've come to the wrong place. But if you like chocolate, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's so stupid. And caramel. Yeah. <laughs> mm.
2: While the lip-sync numbers were absolutely incredible, it was clear that the main beauty of this event was the space it provided for diverse performers and the political message it brought with it. Sensational. And what's next for the both of you in your drag careers?
10: Oh. Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I guess keep getting, being booked and blessed, I guess. Yes. And I can't wait. We, we're really quite eager to do another number together. Oh, so yes. we'll say that it's a bit snaky. I guess that's what I'll give away. But, yeah, so looking forward to doing another number with Eve. Um, and, yeah, just for myself, I guess, um, specifically, just kind of presenting, uh, representing, you know, kings. Um, I know it's, it's sorry, a bit of a heavy topic that sort of comes up here and there. I sort of go, okay, am I like the token POC, bisexual king? But no, I'm, I'm really, really proud of what I've done and I'm really glad that people enjoy what I do because I like bringing joy to other people, so I want to keep doing that and also representing by POC drag kings. There's not many of us. <laughs>
8: For me, it's just, you know, keep being booked and blessed and keep, you know, trying to level up. Um, using my platform to, you know, push political statements, notions of booking more POC talent because it's so great to see Melbourne opening up to people who look like Genitals and I and the rest of Smash. Um, but it does not stop there. We can keep going. It is nice to see, you know, that they have a POC person on their show. But it would be great to see two POC people in their show. Absolutely. And more trans performers in their show. And more gender diverse in their show. We, we can move past just having one performer mm. ticking boxes here. So, yeah, um, yeah just keep chugging on. Mm-hmm.
9: I think my favorite thing would probably be the, I think the whole storyline of what we did tonight and how that, um, what that means in Abbotsford Convent mm. Um doing the Runaway Bride, mm. heteronormative uh, institution of marriage and being in a Abbotsford Convent and then also having the angel and devil um, dynamic, the, yeah in Abbotsford and ru- the devil, uh, in quotations, ruining the nun, and I think, yeah, I just, I hope audiences could, like, I know, kind of context of, like, the space and location in the shows and the the topics and the themes in the shows. Yes, we were doing a wrestling show, but, like, um, I think it's also important to understand where we are in this, in putting the show. Um Yeah, and I think... I hope our shows were um, not undermining that, but I guess uh, critiquing those institutions that have been so set in this place. And yeah, as queer as queer mob and queer and and um, our trans performers, like I think that says so much what we did in this space. I think that's probably my favorite thing. Mm. Mm.
7: Yeah, I feel like
9: We kind of...
7: Yes, it was a wrestling show, quote-unquote. But ultimately, it was a bit of a fuck you to the colony. And especially, again, as you were saying, in a space like this that has held a lot of... mm, I don't
9: know. Nastiness. Nasty, really fucked up shit. Really bullshit nightmare vibes.
7: And having all of that really played into with every performer tonight was just really funny if nothing else and i think yes wrestling but academic wrestling
10: (laughs) smash is like performer run performer like organized and run um so like all nine of them are performers they run it together there's no management that's taking a cut there's no like venue overhead like they're a fully independent group and like, regardless of everything else that makes Smash amazing, is I think that's really special.
9: I think what's next for um, us and Smash in general, I think is a continual re-rising of trans and mob and PRC performers. Um, you know, we've been here, we've always been here, and I think that's just what we're going to keep doing, keep disrupting those spaces and keep doing us and drag, you know, we'll Drag is drag and we'll be around. and We'll be popping up and we'll be um, doing our thing.
2: That's all from me on Smash today. Many thanks to all of the performers who sat down with me to unpack the importance of First Nations and POC representation. If you want to keep up to date with all things Smash, you can give them a follow on Instagram, smash the drag show, or you can use that same name on their Facebook page. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined today by Jacob and Evan. That was a little segment on Smash the Drag Show. And up next, we're going to be speaking on Ukraine. So if you've been following the news the last couple of weeks, you may know that tensions between Ukraine and Russia have escalated in the past week with foreign powers proclaiming that a Russian invasion of the former Soviet state is imminent. And Russia denies such claims, but this follows months of talks between Russia and members of NATO, uh, which if you didn't know is the military alliance between North America and Europe, with Russia making demands that NATO ceases all military activity in Eastern Europe and not accept Ukraine as a member. And Joe Biden and Boris Johnson have both committed to protecting Ukraine's sovereignty. So here to unpack what all of this means is Dr. Kirill Nurjanov from the ANU. Uh, Welcome to the show.
11: Good morning, Jacob.
2: Good morning. Now, we've heard a lot about Russia in the Ukraine, uh, sorry, and the Ukraine in the media in the past week. Historically, what has the relationship been like between these two countries?
11: Uh, Well, we... If I have the whole semester to unpack this relationship, uh, I would be very grateful because it goes back uh, way, way, way many centuries. But uh, uh, the current crisis is a culmination of uh, the relationship that has been uh, going from bad to worse since uh, uh, 2014 uh, when uh, there was a new government in Ukraine which decided that uh, we are going to gravitate towards the West, we are going to join the European Union and we are going to join NATO. And uh, this uh, really caused a major deterioration in the relationship because the Russians said, well, it's just not on. And uh, as a result of this Uh, separation, Uh, the Russians took Crimea and uh, started to render all sorts of assistance to the rebels in the east of Ukraine, the Russophonic part of Ukraine, which did not want to follow the national leadership uh, on the path to NATO uh, membership. So, uh, what we are seeing now, eight years after that rupture in 2014, is uh, simply a continuation of this basic disagreement, where uh, Ukraine Wants to join NATO and Russia sees such a move as an existential security threat and wants to prevent it through all means available, which may include outright military conflict.
2: Okay, so there seems to be a pretty clear motive then here um, for Russia invading Ukraine. Now, there's been many mixed accounts of the unfolding situation with. Uh, many of from the West saying that a Russian invasion is imminent. Um, France is a bit sceptical. Russia is saying it's hysteria from the West. What are your thoughts on that big question of will Russia invade the Ukraine?
11: Well, uh, again, when I say that uh, Russia will go to extraordinary lengths to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO, including some kind of military option, this does not mean uh, an outright invasion and occupation of Ukraine. Uh, After all, it's a big uh, European nation of about 42 million people. On the strength of this, I can safely predict that there will be no large-scale invasion uh, by Russia. Russia simply does not have uh, enough uh, troops and enough material, and uh, certainly perhaps doesn't have a will to do so. It's enough for Russia to put... Uh, pressure to keep pressure on Ukraine to sabotage uh, uh, certain aspirations and projects of uh, the Ukrainian government, and most certainly to um, uh, maintain control or maintain close relationship with separatists in the east of Ukraine uh, for. Ukraine to never join NATO. So the Russians are pretty happy with the status quo. There is no reason for them really to escalate to an outright invasion. Thus, uh, which uh, leaves me quite puzzled, just like you and I'm sure many of your listeners, that uh, what this uh, current hysteria coming from the U.S. and the U.K. is all about. Uh, because if you survey the global media, it's uh, just the Anglosphere that uh, pumps the narrative that the invasion is imminent. And uh, uh, British and Australian tabloids publish uh, stories of how the uh, Russian tankmen are already bringing portable uh, uh, fences for concentration camps. Uh, th- this is just Absolutely ridiculous. Um, I noticed that uh, when last week an quad meeting was held, the uh, Indian foreign minister, for example, simply refused to be dragged into this uh, uh, media circus and said, well, actually, India does not view the situation in such a dramatic light. And uh, then uh, the president of Brazil visited Moscow last week. The question of Ukraine was not raised at all. And, of course, uh, what we should keep in mind is that there was a major development on the 4th of February when the Chinese government, which uh, until then had maintained uh, neutrality, On the situation between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and uh, uh, China had not recognized uh, the annexation of Crimea, it does not view Crimea as Russian territory, Uh, began to change its its tack, and now Beijing supports uh, uh, Moscow. So, uh, thus, indeed, it's peculiar that uh, this uh, concern, this moral panic about the now uh, upcoming invasion where Russia is an absolute baddie and uh, uh, Putin is the dark lord of Murder, murder who wants to <laughs> occupy uh, Ukraine and uh, destroy its sovereignty. It's, uh, it exists in the Anglosphere segment, segment of uh, global politics and global media and perhaps we should uh, deconstruct it with uh, uh, a critical mind.
2: Of course. So what I'm hearing is that this is largely just a narrative uh, perpetuated through media sensa- sensationalization. Um And I know that you said before that Russia really doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. Are, are there any other things that Russia wants from Ukraine? Like, why would they be putting all of this pressure on Ukraine at this point?
11: Right. So the main story, and the, uh, again, it's uh, quite remarkable how much uh, hype and hyperbole exists in the West, speculations uh, on Putin's mind. I noticed that Peter Dutton provided his own explanation a couple of weeks ago that apparently it's all about Putin's megalomania, who's about to turn 70. And uh, he wants to be seen as a macho man, so that's uh, that's uh, Peter Dutton's explanation for absolutely everything. I find it uh, a bit uh, shallow, to say the least. So, uh, that's uh, Putin uh, and Russian leadership has been crystal clear that uh, what it wants uh, from Ukraine under under uh, the current circumstances is neutrality. So if uh, Ukraine follows the path of Finland or, say, Austria, and uh, maintains a non bloc status, no further questions will be asked. Ukraine can do whatever it wants to do with its uh, foreign and domestic policy. Uh, the uh, second question, uh, the second national security interest that Russia has been articulating on Ukraine is uh, the well-being of four million people in the east, uh, people of Donbas, those breakaway uh, regions. Uh, because. Uh, For all intents and purposes, uh, uh, what uh, what is known in Russia, they are compatriots, uh, they they speak Russian, a lot of them have Russian passports, and their well-being and their physical safety is a major security concern for Russia. So thus, if Ukraine tries to... Uh, recapture those territories through the force of arms then certainly russia will intervene but again it will be a defensive action. it will not be a wholesale occupation of uh, ukraine um, in totality
2: Hmm. and and what are your thoughts on do you think ukraine will remain neutral and do you think those territories will remain in russian hands
11: uh, well, that's what we're trying to figure out uh, right now, and the situation is fluid, and uh, uh, I'm, I tend to be quite optimistic uh, because uh, there have been signals, not necessarily from the United Kingdom or the U.S., but uh, from other members of uh, Uh, what we call old Europe, say uh, President Macron had another, President of France uh, had another telephone conversation with Putin overnight, and uh, there seems to be some kind of uh, uh, movement, at least on uh, this second issue, that is, uh, uh, some kind of guarantees will be um, uh, solicited from Kiev that it will not uh, try to... Uh, retain uh, re- regain control over uh, Donbass through the force of arms negotiations uh, may start uh, through the so called trilateral group, uh, actually, as early as today. Um, on the second issue, which is, um, uh, like broader agreement between uh, Russia and uh, NATO and the United States on uh, uh, how to manage uh, crisis situations in Europe and how to prevent them, a lot of work must be done because uh, in 2022 we're in a much less secure, much less... in a stable situation than uh, ever before since uh, the end of the Second World War. It's, uh, nobody knows what to expect from the other side. There are no rules or, uh, or even fora where such issues can be discussed. It's all about sanctions, military build-ups, uh, uh, brinkmanship. It's, it's a very unpleasant situation, really. Uh, but uh, again, there are noises, uh, diplomatic uh, uh, dispatches coming. Uh, uh, from uh, the West now, that maybe, just maybe, the West will finally sit down with Russia and uh, negotiate some kind of rules of engagement, rules of conduct in, in uh, Europe. Uh, that's what the Russians have been uh, demanding, really, uh, since uh, 2007 at least. So perhaps uh, there is a light in the end of the tunnel.
2: I see. And, and how do you think, overall, this event reflects on the current state of international relations in the world. I know you said before it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of all about economic sanctions and, and brinkmanship. Yeah. Do you think um, we'll, that we will see more dialogue between Russia and the states of NATO and more mm-hmm. cooperation in the future?
11: Mm. Well, uh, there is no other way because what's the alternative? It's uh, if uh, this... Uh, Tense standoff continues, uh, even if uh, Putin does not have plans to invade Ukraine, just the sheer concentration of forces on uh, both sides of the border, especially in Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine, is fraught with all sorts of uh, uh, accidents, and uh, an accident can easily escalate into something bigger. So thus, uh, uh, the Russians want to negotiate, the West wants to negotiate, Ukraine wants to negotiate, uh, uh, and uh, the negotiations will uh, will eventually come. Uh, the, the big question is, of course, uh, when and under what conditions, and uh, uh, coming back to your bigger question as to what the current crisis tells us about the state of uh, international relations uh, it's uh, again it's, uh, I, mean, I don't want to sound cynical but a lot of people in Russia for example according to opinion polls uh, miss the bad old days of the Cold War when at least there was certainty where here they are there, there are spheres of influence uh, and uh, certain red lines and uh, certain uh, treaties uh, strategic nuclear treaties that uh, prevent a nuclear holocaust uh, so some kind of uh, certainty again was available to people that kept their minds at ease. now we have nothing uh, all of those cold war era treaties uh, have been uh, disestablished primarily for the action of the united states which uh, withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2001, and then Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in 2019. Uh, No more Open Skies uh, surveillance program, again, thanks to the United States. Uh, Nothing, nothing is left. Everyone is second-guessing the other uh, parties move. It's intolerable. It must end, and it will end. Um, Again, just to uh, put a final historical touch, uh, we know about uh, something similar that... um, happened in 1962, Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, again, a big uh, confrontation uh, between uh, superpowers. Uh, The the peace survived on the nice edge, but it did survive. And uh, what happened then, thanks to uh, John Kennedy, was uh, a de-escalation, and uh, eventually, uh, Negotiations, meaningful strategic negotiations took place and the world became a safer place and eventually we experienced the daytime. So let's hope that's how uh, history will come out uh, uh, in 2022.
2: Yes, yeah, certainly many gray parts and and many moving parts as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Nuruddinov. Really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on the current U- uh, issue in Ukraine. Mm. Thank you, Jacob. Always a pleasure. So that was uh, Dr. Kirill Nurganov there sharing his thoughts on uh, the current, uh, as he described it, media circus. R- Will Russia invade Ukraine? Um, and the answer seemed to be no. It was a really fascinating perspective that uh, Kirill put there, uh, and I love
3: that deep dive into history as well, uh, looking at uh, different dynamics within Europe and then also the US-Russian relationship, and we know that... Um, um, all throughout modern international relations um, that one crisis is always inherently linked to the next. So I think it is important to stand back uh, to look at how we've reached this moment and perhaps that gives some clues as to how uh, de-escalation could occur as well. But fascinating to, yeah, to really hear the perspective of... Um, how the the the, um, the tension itself is being perceived and understood within Russia right now, from a on the ground perspective amongst the, the community there, um, but then also too from um, a motives perspective from from the Russian government and. Love those alternative perspectives, and if you do like alternative perspectives, then it's really important for listeners out there to subscribe to 3CR, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. It is subscriber month. We want you to get online and support um, the station, support 3CR as an organization. It gives you the chance to be able to, to shape the direction of content and, and shape where we go going into 2022. So get
2: on board, everyone, if you want to hear more excellent perspectives like Carell's. Yes, yes, please, um, support us if you can. Um, just to give you some costs here, if you're unwaged or on a concession or pension, it's $35 a year, just $35. $75 if you have a job, um, and a, a regular income, and $150 is our solidarity or band, or if you're an organization as well. Um, so that's an annual fee. So please hop on to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe you're on 3cr breakfast with jacob and evan and we will be right back after these community service announcements
0: live at the bowl is on now the open-air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentremelbourne.com.au 3 our Supporter Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial
7: intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February
3: 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com.
7: Transitions Film Festival
3: is a 3CR supporter. This is 3CR with Jacob and Evan. It is 8.02am. Cooler day in Melbourne today. Top of 19 degrees. Hope you're having a good morning and it's always a pleasure to have your company. A lot of listeners out there, considering that we're broadcasting out of Melbourne and we're very much a Victorian-oriented station, have heard of the plight of the helmeted honeyeater. That's Victoria's bird emblem. There's definitely less familiarity uh, when it comes to thinking about uh, its uh, closely related um, uh, cousin, the Regent Honeyeater. On the line, we have Ross Crate, who is a post postdoctoral research fellow and a member of the difficult bird research group like that name a lot um, to talk about um, the current status of the region honey eater in the wild and what we can do to ensure that we uh, can protect this really really special and, and beautiful animal. Ross good to have you on the show this morning. Um, Ross f- for you um, first of all um, I bet growing up and um, starting off your career, you could never imagine how much the, the Regent Honey Eater would come to, to feature within with your working life.
12: You're right, yeah, I'd, uh, it was a bit of a, a random path to end up spending the last 7 years studying Regent Honey Eaters. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm obviously originally from the UK, um, so um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long journey, but it's been an
3: enjoyable one. I'm glad to hear it's been an enjoyable one, that's, that's fantastic. Before we talk about how the Regent Honey eater is tracking and, uh, strategies to, to save this really special bird, I want you to paint a picture of these honey eaters for the listeners out there. If they don't know what they look like, if they don't know what's unique about these birds, it'd be really great for you to, um, yeah, paint a bit of a, of a, um, oral picture of these, of these special, um, special creatures.
12: No problem. Well, they're, they are absolutely beautiful birds, as you say. Um, they have a bright, bright yellow tail. <clears throat> their wings are these mix of bright yellow and black, and their their the front, their breast is um, is scarlet with little um, sort of V-shaped yellow and black markings, and they're they're really spectacular. Um, and they have these really weird um, warty faces. So the the patch around their eye doesn't have any feathers at all. It's just got these little lumpy, warty bits. So a previous name for these birds was the warty-faced honey eater. Um, so, so that's, um, that's yeah, they're, 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 they're probably about the size of, um, I'm trying to think of a comparison species for suburban Melbourne. If, if people are familiar with the, with the noisy minor, um a region honey is about two-thirds the size of a, of a, of a noisy miner. So roughly the sort of span of your hand if you if you stretch your
3: hand out. That's an, an excellent description. And then also for um, everyone out there too, can you give us a sense as to where they can be found or still found in the wild? They are um, uh, critically threatened and they're such a small number, less than 300 in the wild is um, what you've described in an excellent article that was in the conversation just recently. But um, whereabouts in Australia they are currently found? Mm-hmm
12: really common bird, I mean they used to be seen in suburban Melbourne, um, you know, as recently as maybe 20 to 30 years ago there would, would still be 10 and up in those places, um, and historically their range extended from um, Adelaide in the southwest right up into sort of central coastal Queensland, um, and they, they specialize in, in, in the woodlands, so the, the box ironbark woodlands often up the sort of western slopes um, and, and the coastal forests would, would have been their, their core core range. Um, but unfortunately what we've seen is the populations decline, that range has contracted. So um, in, in Victoria, uh, their, their remaining sort of stronghold is the, um, is the area around sort of Chiltern Kilowara area, so Chiltern National Park. Um, birds still turn up there um, semi-regularly, um, and that area has been the focus of, of reintroduction efforts of, of zoo-bred birds over the last 20 or so years. Um, but really the, the remaining core population of the birds now occurs in, in the Blue Mountains, so west of Sydney, um, and there's about probably five or six different breeding areas within within the Blue Mountains that the birds use, um, but they use different areas in different years. So they're, they're what we call a, a nomadic species, mm-hmm. and that's one of the, the challenges for, for studying these birds is that there's so few of them, they have this huge range, um, and they don't always turn up in the same place at the same time, so yeah hence the Difficult Bird Research Group.
3: Oh, I think I have a, I have a bit of a, a soft spot for nomads, but fundamentally they are heavily reliant on um, habitat where they can find extra-rich nectar. Is that, is that right?
12: That's correct, yeah. So region honeyeaters are slightly unique in, in, the, sort of, in the honeyeater family in that they particularly rely heavily on, on access to nectar for breeding, so a lot of other honey eaters will, will feed on nectar but they'll feed their babies, their chicks, things like insects and invertebrates but um, nectar forms a particularly high proportion of the diet of, of young birds and that means they can only really breed if they can get access to these um, you know, really heavily flowering trees um, and only a few species of trees uh, are, are, are favoured by them so we're talking things like yellow box and mugger bark and a few of the red gums and the mistletoes that grow in the River She-Oak. So um,
3: they, they really need to be able to exploit those resources to better breed successfully. So what comes through really clearly is that the habitat that they're super reliant on to survive is, is under threat. So you've, um, and diminished and has dwindled significantly since colonisation in Australia. You've written that they could be extinct in the next 20 years what can we do now if we know that that's the the case to ensure that these birds have the best possible chance of um of not perishing that what can we do to to bolster numbers what would what would you like to see be done now given that we're in such a dire position with how the region honey eater is tracking along
12: Yes, yeah, so, so the research you're talking about that we published a little while ago um, is really the culmination of about um, eight years of intensive field work that we've undertaken at the um, ANU in collaboration with BirdLife and also um, Toronto Conservation Society. So we we pulled all of the available data together on, on, on the monitoring that's gone on of these birds and plugged these into some computer models, and as you said, the predictions are that they may, they may well be extinct within 20 years, and so... Um, to prevent that happening, in the next five years are going to be absolutely crucial to try and do everything that we can do, um, to save these birds. And there's really like a three pronged approach. So the first one is that we know that the birds are still out there, have r- relatively low breeding success. Um, less than only around one in three, um, nests that lays and has an egg laid in it actually leads to a, a juvenile being fledged from that nest. Um, and through our monitoring, we've been able to show that Predation is by far and away the main cause of, of, of nest failure. So these poor birds, they build open cup nests in the uh, sort of outer branches of trees, and they basically just get eaten by anything that finds them. Um, so we're talking uh, currawongs, possums, gliders, um, noisy miners, ravens, you name it. So so one of the things we need to do is try to come up with ways that we can actually protect regionally nests from predation so that, that the remaining wild population has better breeding
3: success in the short term. What might that look like in terms of protecting those nests?
12: Yeah, so what, we do, what we've been trialling over the last couple of years is we can put plastic, plastic sheeting around the trunks of trees, and that basically creates a slippery surface that things like possums and goannas can't climb up to access the nest, nest tree. So that's one component. Um, another component we've been trying is actually um, controlling um, lethal control of noisy miners. So I'm sure many of your listeners will be very um, very well aware of, of, of the, the problems that noisy, noisy miners cause. Um, so we're doing this in really targeted areas to try and specifically benefit region honey eaters. So it's not something we enjoy doing, but it's something that we,
3: we absolutely will have to do if, if if we're going to save rigid honey from going extinct. And some of the listeners out there, they might be a little bit confused between noisy miners and common miners. So for anyone out there who's wondering what we're talking about, it's the, uh, the grey birds that have a little black face and, um, they're, as the name suggests, they're quite noisy, they're quite aggressive, but as opposed to the other very, very common minor birds, uh, that you'll see around suburban Melbourne, the, the Indian minor bird, uh, which is, uh, predominantly brown and with black.
12: That, that's it, you're correct there, yeah, and it, it's, it's funny because obviously the um, the common miners or the Indian miners are, are actually an introduced species, but they tend to occur really around humans, so they're, they're specialists of these suburban areas and they don't tend to go out into the bush. Um, and so ironically, it's really the, the noisy miners that are the problem, so their populations have absolutely exploded over the last sort of you know, 20 to 30 years. And that's a result of us creating the perfect habitat for them. They like these ed, they kind of like degraded habitats and and edges of of bushland. And so, where where Europeans have come along and and cleared cleared the bush for farmland and and whatever else, we've created the perfect environment for for noisy miners. And they are basically the winners in this situation, and region honeyeaters are the losers, unfortunately.
3: Oh, it 's dreadful, really dreadful, and then so noisy minor um, management being a crucial part of the mix, and then also to really honing in on breeding programs as well but toronga
12: conservation society've been managing a, a, a zoo breeding program um, and they 've reintroduced birds mostly into northern Victoria, but the approach has shifted over the last um, a couple of years, and now we 're releasing the birds into the into the blue mountains so instead of trying to buffer the edge of the range in in Victoria and and prevent that range contracting, what we're doing now is we're piling birds into the middle of the range. Um, Because regional natives are a bird that have evolved to live in flocks. They're quite small compared to other birds they're competing against for these nectar resources. Um, Things like um, noisy firebirds or red wattlebirds or lorikeets and things like that. So the way that they can kind of survive is through safety in numbers. And so the, the theory now is to to boost the wild population where most of the wild birds are still occurring in the Blue Mountains with the zoo-bred birds. And, and at the same time, hopefully the zoo-bred birds can mix in with the wild birds and learn a little bit more about survival in the wild from, from their
3: conspecifics that already um, live there. And then fundamentally, and also finally too, Habitat management and protection of their remaining habitat is, you've written, the absolute key pillar to ensure that any of these efforts, whether it's breeding programs or protecting or protection of nests, that's the, the fundamental um, plank and, and action that needs to, to surround all efforts to save the, the region honey eater. Exactly.
12: I mean, and habitat loss, you know, we, we estimate that these birds have lost something like 90% of their breeding habitat. Oof. Probably more. Um, and so, protecting these really crucial little areas that that remain where these we know these birds nest is going to be absolutely fundamental. Um, and on top of that, um, obviously restoring the habitats that have been lost. There's lots of tree plantings that that go on, but it needs to be big scale, you know. And it needs to um, it needs to yeah it needs to last long time because the, the the birds won't use those trees until they're probably 20 to 30 years old. So um, you know, historical plantings will start to become valuable habitat over the next few decades. Um, but, yeah, it's really going to be that large-scale protection that we're going to need.
3: Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning and really shining the light on the plight of the region, honey. I appreciate your time a lot. No problem, Evan. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Ross Crate's postdoctoral research fellow and member of the Difficult Bird Research Group at ANU. I was in Winchelsea, well I drove through Winchelsea over the weekend and to give you a sense as to how wow um, threatened these region honey eaters are, just thinking about uh, what 300 looks like at the river at Winchelsea. There would have been about a thousand Corallas and so that was quite a, a sight and a, a compact sort of view and vista of um, of, of birds and then Think about how many region honey eaters are left in the wild Well that's a third of just this humble little flock of korellas that was there by the river So we're talking about a, a fraction of a formerly um, huge, huge community of birds and, and, um, that, uh, that are now left So great to hear about the work
2: that Ross is doing Fantastic. Thank you so much for that interview, Evan, and if you want to learn a bit more about sustainability, there's actually a festival happening right now called the Sustainable Living Festival, so let's hear some more details.
8: Join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the Decade Zero and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Let's bounce back with sustainability in 2022. Head to slf.org.au for the full details. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter.
0: Live at the Bowl is on now. The Open Air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full programme at artscentremelbourne.com.au. 3CR supporter.
2: Good morning, you're on 3CR joined by Jacob and Evan. Up next, we're going to be hearing about the Morrison government's Religious Discrimination Bill that aims to give religious organisations the power to discriminate on the basis of an individual's trans or gender-diverse identity. It's a bill that's been met with controversy both in And out of Parliament. It was actually debated until about 5am a a couple of weeks ago during Parliament's recent sitting week before it was shelved. And here to talk about the bill and what it all means is the CEO of Equality Australia, Anna Brown. Anna, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So the bill was debated until about 5am. What does it all mean and what is it set out to achieve?
5: Yeah, I think there's a bit of confusion. There's actually two bills. Um, the Religious Discrimination Bill uh, you know, was designed to be a to provide protections for people of faith, to be a shield from discrimination, um, which I think is something that um, everyone or most people in Australia can get behind. I certainly believe that in principle. But the problem was the Morrison government had added some extra clauses, uh, which or parts of the bill that went too far that actually uh, allowed or authorised discrimination against other communities. Um, it override existing protections, not just for LGBTI people, um, the communities that I represent and work with, but also women, people with disability, and ironically, people faith. So that was one piece of legislation. And then there was another bill travelling... It's actually two other bills, but one of them's not... not worth mentioning, that um, there was another bill travelling through with that piece of legislation as a reform package, and that's where the debate over uh, students in school started, because as part of the um, negotiations with the moderates and the Liberal Party, the Morrison government agreed to amend um, that second bill and add some... Uh, um, provisions that would have amended the sex discrimination act the act which protects lgbtq plus people and women from discrimination uh, to remove uh really awful carve outs that exist in that act that allow religious schools to discriminate against uh, lgbtq students uh, so i don't think a lot of people understood that but and and so i just thought it was worth taking people through the detail but so there was a bad bill, the religious discrimination bill, that would have um, made discrimination worse for everyone, even although the principle of protecting people of faith is a good a good idea. Um, so we were campaigning to amend or stop that legislation. And then alongside that, there was um, a proposal we very much support that we should amend the Sex Discrimination Act to protect LGBTQ students from discrimination. Now, the Morrison government... Uh, uh, with that amendment, had only proposed to protect gay students from expulsion, so that was um, didn't go nearly far enough. So that's why uh, the Labor opposition, the Independents, and, in fact Rebecca Sharkey moved the amendment uh, herself, and then ultimately five members of the government crossed the floor to support those those amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act applying to all. Uh, to, to both gay and trans students, not just leaving trans students behind. So that was really, I think, quite significant uh, to see the majority of the government standing up for trans kids. Um, and, and in all of the, the awful debate and the, um, you know, the subjecting of the rights of trans kids to media and political debate, which was really dismissing for a lot of people that week, I think... Uh, we can it, in the end it was a victory because um for the first time we we saw even members of Morrison government to say no, we're not gonna divide the community. We're going to not let any group of children behind, not the least a really vulnerable group that suffer really awful mental health um outcomes. So it was it was a good day for trans kids. But sadly still no at the end of the day neither bill passed. Um so the Morrison government, after the amendment succeeded uh, in the lower house, um, actually pulled both bills. So we didn't get the bad bill, the religious discrimination bill that would have made things worse for everyone, and we didn't get the good amendment either, That we didn't get the protections for students because uh, the the government said, um, I, well, I think the government can speak for itself, but it. there there was people within the government, but also the Australian Christian lobby, who um, thought that it was more important to be able to discriminate against Trans kids than actually have protections for people right.
3: of no, faith. That's a very a sad, terrible sad, sad calculation sad. and, and right. a terrible equation there, Anna. And I know that in the lead up to, um, I suppose the, the at least the amendment going through. But as you are saying, both um, both bills being part. It's been a horrible period for families and across Australia and, and, and different different Australians. I'm just wondering, thinking about conversations that you've had. Um, across the community, whether you can give us a sense of the, the angst and, and uncertainty people have been feeling um, in recent months.
5: I think the, it, all, it started really, um, it really ramped up when the City Point Christian School uh, story broke in the, main, in the media about the contract that school up in Brisbane was trying to, you know, a couple of days before students went back to school, sent out a document the family saying, you need to sign up to this, otherwise you won't be allowed to, uh, your child won't be allowed to come to school. And it was an anti-LGBT policy uh, that said, I mean, I don't even want to
3: say it. It's not oh, it's just expensive. vile for, for all the listeners um, out there. It was just absolutely uh, hatred-based language that was in that contract. No need to go into all the, the details other yeah. than it was uh, pointed, targeted, nasty and cruel.
5: Yeah, and needless to say, the family, to their credit, really, uh, responded saying this is, you know, we, can't, we won't stand for this. And a lot of them were committed Christians that said, you know, it's not our values as Christians. This doesn't reflect our religious values. Um so often conservative Christian lobby groups say, you know, this is, it's about the religious ethos of the school, but you, um you know, there's so many Christians out there that Do support equality, and we saw that in the marriage equality vote as well. And it's often those more uh, supportive and affirming Christian or religious voices that are drowned out by the hate, which is a terrible thing altogether. So we saw that debate really kick off that the week before the religious discrimination package was due to be debated in Parliament, and just throughout the course of that week, I mean, we had. I had contact with really distressed families um and the people the colleagues that I work with that work directly with trans young people and families were saying that people were on the phone crying to them kids were refusing to go to school. they were scared they, they they didn't know what would happen if they went to school they thought they weren't allowed to go to school because they were trans it was and this is just from media, reading the media reports and and seeing what was happening in parliament it was really really awful time um and when you look at our parliament you know we don't really exactly have a lot of representation for trans people there so mm. why would these young people think that you know a government and parliament that you know largely made up of people that or well, is made up of people that don't look like them or or and they, they can't they don't have any confidence that their interests would be represented at the end of the day but that's what was wonderful about seeing uh, Stephen Jones in the Labor Party. A number of politicians stand up who were you know, not trans themselves but able to share stories of really, actually, for Stephen, tragic stories of family members they'd lost and um, people in their lives that they loved, um, young people who, um, and the need to protect and support those young people. So we did see some really powerful moments in the debate. And and ultimately, at the end of the week, um, it was a victory for uh, quality and dignity for for trans young people, but also for um, every other group in society as well. I think that's what prevailed at the end of the day, which was a good thing.
2: Absolutely. I think there was some really positive reactions there from the community. And I know we've got an election coming up this year. If there is a change of government, or if there isn't, uh, what are your hopes for trans and gender diverse people?
5: Well, obviously I'm not trans myself, but our organisation very much works uh, to support the voices of trans people and ensure their human rights are protected and supported. We'd like to see gender-affirming healthcare treated like any other area of healthcare and ensure that the barriers that currently exist uh, to accessing, whether it's hormone treatment or surgery, uh, they're incredibly high at the moment, and we need to make sure that trans and gender diverse adults, um, but young people where um, that where appropriate, can access that the medical care they need. Uh, that's that's a big issue, and then um, you know we still have these awful exemptions in the. Sex Discrimination Act, but also state laws around the country. Not everywhere. So in Victoria, people might remember, we had a win last year. We had um, changes made to our Equal Opportunity Act so that whether you're accessing services uh, at a faith-based charity that runs a homeless service or you're teaching in a religious school, um, that those exemptions no longer, no longer allow those bodies to turn away and discriminate against. People based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. So that's that's huge, and that's really mm. fantastic in Victoria, but not not the case across the board. And that's why those national laws are really important. So we'll be focusing on the changes in the Sex Discrimination Act in the lead up to the election, and and making sure that uh, our political parties um, are are really held to account for their position
2: on those issues. And fingers crossed we can get some of those changes across the line. Well, Anna, I'm so sorry. That's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR. Great to speak to you. Thank you. So that was Anna Brown, who is the CEO of Equality Australia. And Evan, that brings us to the end of our show. We're at a wrap. What a show. Great conversations. Great to be with you, Jacob. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Up next is Women on the Line.
0: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.